good afternoon all. Thank you for joining us here uh, for the Herbert Smith Freehills Safety Leadership Series. This is a, a series we've presented for our clients now for many years, maybe perhaps even nearly a decade, where we take some particular themes or topics and present over the course of a year a, a three-part discussion of those. Today, we're gonna to discuss the uh, dramatic changes, frankly, that are happening uh, across health and safety law in relation to the management of non-physical risks, psychological safety, sexual harassment, and a range of other uh, additional risks which are now being regulated squarely by the health and safety regulators in each of the jurisdictions in which we're in. Uh, my name is Steve Bell. I'm the managing partner here at the Employment Industrial Relations and Safety Team here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Um, there's a few things I wanted to do by way of uh, introduction, then I'll introduce our, our, our panellists. Uh, the, the, the first is an acknowledgement of country. I'm here in uh, Wurundjeri, uh, the Wurundjeri Nation uh, here, uh, and I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging of the land uh, upon whom we stand here in our Herbert Smith Freehills offices here in Collins Street in Melbourne. Um, I also wanted to say that over the course of this discussion, we'll be talking about some of the reforms that have occurred and also some of the responses that have occurred across the states and territories in relation to a number of reviews and reviews in particular in relation to, in some cases, awful experiences of women uh, across a range of workplaces, including up until uh, sexual assault and more serious crimes. And so I, I wanted to lay that uh, uh, out early for the attendees to let you know that they may be triggering for some of you uh, and you may choose to opt out or opt in of some of that or otherwise seek whatever support might be appropriate. And so uh, I wanted to provide you with that warning before we commence today. Uh, and thirdly, to let you know that as we travel through the session, there's the opportunity for you to ask questions and answers. I'll take you through our agenda uh, on the next slide here in uh, a second, but to, to let you know that the control tab that's on your screen here uh, in this format is available for you to add any questions that you might have and we'll endeavour to get to those as we travel through the session here today. With that, I'd love to introduce our four speakers. We've got each of our four uh, Australian officers uh, covered here on the, uh, the panel and the people you can see on the screen in front of you. Uh, if I can ask you to uh, wave and introduce yourself, Olga, uh, who is here from our Perth office, uh, Lucy, who joins us from our Sydney office, a special counsel there in our Sydney office, and Aaron, our partner in our Brisbane office, all of us who've been helping clients grapple with these issues that we're going to be covering today. And to be honest, as we sat and we thought about this session, we almost struggled to find where to draw some lines about what has become a sprawling and expanding area of increased regulation. And so we're going to try and draw some uh, themes around this for you, for those of you joining this call to understand you know, where, where to from here and what is the current regulatory landscape. I'm going to start the session. I'm going to have a, a brief discussion about what's happening here in my home state here in Victoria with some proposed changes to psychological safety chapters being introduced into our regulations, some black letter law uh, and a new focus by WorkSafe Victoria on what they're referring to as gendered violence and perhaps unpack that for you to some extent. Aaron will talk to us about the approach that's been taken in other states and territories across Australia. If, if anything, perhaps Victorian position is something of a high watermark as we sit here today in August 2022, but I, I think it won't be long until something like this uh, is in existence in many other states and territories, and Aaron's going to walk us through that. Olga will be talking about uh, the sorts of uh, actions which are being taken by business in response to the Enough is Enough report. Uh, and then Lucy will finally have a, a focused discussion on the state of play 
in relation to sexual harassment arising out of any number of reviews that have been undertaken in relation to that particular topic. And then we'll try and bring all this together at the end with a, with a discussion about what, what, what is it a, a business or an employer, a safety lead, a HR lead, an ops manager, a board, an executive team to make of this uh, and, and, and what are the likely best next steps. So an ambitious agenda, let's, let's get into it. If I can take you to uh, this first topic, what is happening here in Victoria where I'm, I'm sitting today. Um, on the next slide here, I, I can show you that the, the, the idea that work health and safety or in here in Victoria, for reasons we've all forgotten now, occupational health and safety law can apply in relation to non-physical risks. That is not new news. Uh, it's been the case now that uh, WorkSafe Victoria has brought any number of investigations and prosecutions in relation to uh, psychological risks. Some of those having manifested in physical risks and injuries to uh, workers, uh, but many of them not, many of them having resulted uh, in psychological harm alone, and not to draw a comparison between those two, but to make the observation, I suppose, that it's been the case in Victoria for quite some time that uh, WorkSafe has indicated an intention here in a prosecutorial sense to rely on the general duties of care that exist under the Occupational Health and Safety Act to bring prosecutions against businesses or government departments or agencies of any, any number of complexions in relation to an alleged failure to mitigate as far as is reasonably practicable the risks of psychological harm in those workplaces. But it must be said that the, the, the way in which those prosecutions have unfolded uh, over the recent history is typically focused on stark examples, if you like, of what are uh, failures of employers to manage, you know, perhaps more obvious risks to psychological health and safety. And, and that includes, you know, risks of bullying or assaults on uh, healthcare workers, etc. But that's laid a foundation, I suppose, for, for what has come next. And what uh, has occurred over the last three or four months or so has been the release of a discussion draft in Victoria of proposed psychological safety requirements to be imposed via the Occupational Health and Safety Regulations here in Victoria. So those of you familiar with the structure of health and safety law know that there is a primary act that imposes general duties of care effectively describing indictable offences uh, that can be levied against organisations which fail to provide safe workplaces as far as is reasonably practicable. But they are often supported by a level of detail and often prescription that sits in the regulations that sit underneath uh, that primary duty of care, WHS or OHS Act, sitting in a subsidiary position as OHS regs, WHS regs. So those are important documents, the Work Health and Safety Regulations. They impose specific descriptions of what a duty of care looks like. Uh, they can be a description of what is a deemed compliance with the primary duty of care, or they can impose positive duties of themselves. It is, it is hardwired, black letter regulatory requirements. And I'll show you on the next page what I've, I've attempted uh, to distill uh, onto a single page has been the description of what uh, the uh, regulatory impact statement described, uh, a substantive document that was released with the discussion draft of these proposed psych regs, describes as the process through which all employers in Victoria will be required to assess work health and safety risk. This is the simplification, if you like, of, of what the new regulations will provide. And, and if this is the simple version, you can imagine the degree of complexity with the more detailed version. This description here, if I, if I take us to the next slide, 
um, I'll, I'll distill for you, I suppose, what I think are the requirements of an employer uh, in relation to these laws when they come into effect. They've not yet been uh, enacted in the regulations, but they're due to come into effect soon. It follows that familiar rhythm of risk and hazard identification, clarity and consultation on risk controls, implementation, checking, starting again. The thing that is very familiar with anyone on this call who deals with ordinary occupational health and safety risks, and particularly in the physical risk environment. What is the hazard? What's the risk of it occurring? What can we do about it? Let's do it, make sure it's effective, and let's review in the event of circumstances that suggest it might not be. That's a familiar rhythm of risk management that applies here across any number of industries and across any number of risks. And that is the basis for what's being imposed here in the new proposed psychosocial safety chapter of the Victorian OHS regulations. But in essence, we are now describing the risk controls to manage the human condition, the risk controls to manage the interactions of human beings in workplaces and to think through the consequences and the human and psychosocial impacts of the way in which work is performed. And it must be said that the uh, description here of what is a ordinary risk management process for something that can be seen or perceived or understood uh, is going to be challenging, frankly, for employers to undertake in relation to psychosocial risks. The obligation will be for an employer to identify risks in the workplace and that is to think about any factor associated with the way in which work is designed or work is performed or work is managed, which might have the potential for a negative psychological response. It is not to identify things that will cause harm or may cause harm, it is to identify things that might have a negative psychological response, not a description of illness or injury, but a description of adverse reactions to circumstances in which people find themselves at work. Uh, as this discussion draft describes an extremely broad concept of what harm is when assessing the risk of that harm occurring. The obligation will be to implement risk controls to mitigate that harm, that's familiar, that, that, that is uh, something that happens routinely through health and safety management systems. But Victorian regulations have said it is impermissible to identify risks of psychological harm and simply respond to those by improved training or improved instruction or improved guidance to workers. Those are, so say the regulations, administrative controls and they can't be the first port of call. In essence, what this is driving towards is a positive duty to redesign work and to redesign the experience of people at work in a way which mitigates any chance of them uh, having a negative psychological response. These are extremely broad ideas uh, and uh, impose you know, it has to be said, a high degree of reflection and assessment and analysis at every workplace. And the question that is arising now is where does the capacity for doing this arise? It doesn't sit solely in health and safety teams and nor does it sit solely in human resources teams or management teams or operations teams. The doing of this, this level of detail and this level of prescription is gonna require something you know, quite multifaceted. If I was a psychologist consulting in Victoria, I would see a busy four-year horizon or five-year horizon ahead of me. The regulations do something unusual, which, which isn't common in occupational health and safety by imposing a positive duty to develop documented systems of work. By and large, you can comply with the Health and Safety Act in most jurisdictions with some you know, limited exceptions, often in the construction sector, without necessarily producing written systems uh, or written procedures. 
it's uncommon that the work health and safety legislation imposes a positive duty on an employer to create a written document, but these psychosocial safety regulations will do so by imposing an obligation to create written prevention plans, consulted on, communicated to workers, freely available, uh, able to be uh, inspected or reviewed in relation to any circumstance where there is a risk of uh, harm or negative psychological response arising from hazards, which include the five listed there in box three, bullying, aggression, exposure to traumatic events, high job demands. I mean, high job demands is a phrase that we are going to have to grapple with uh, in the work health and safety space with a degree of precision and a degree of understanding, which to be frank, I don't think attaches to that phrase as we describe it today. And disappointingly, uh, in a way that is not consistently defined across a number of jurisdictions. And Aaron, I think we'll be speaking about that as we go through. And then a positive duty of care to create written prevention plans in relation to the risk of sexual harassment at work. This is the vanguard, frankly, of the uh, effectively criminalisation of failures to mitigate conduct uh, in workplaces which have any of these characteristics or arise from these hazards. A failure to comply with the Work Health and Safety Act doesn't give rise to a right to compensation. It doesn't give rise to uh, an ability for a stop bullying order, for example, as the Fair Work Commission has. Instead, a breach of these obligations, a failure to have one of these plans, a failure to control these risks is a matter which can be subject to investigation and prosecution uh, in the ordinary criminal courts as a business, as an individual, uh, as an other duty holder. And I suppose this is worth reflecting on about what this change has meant, what, what, what these, uh, you know, the movement from the civil sphere of people bringing complaints and having those complaints dealt with and moving it into a positive duty uh, backed up by the infrastructure of a safety regulator like WorkSafe Victoria but with the end point of the criminal justice system, a prosecution for failing to mitigate these risks. We need to reflect, I suppose, on what that change has meant and whether that's true, I suppose, to the intent of bringing these expectations in via this forum. And then finally, something which is also unusual in work health and safety law, or in OHS law here in Victoria, will be a positive duty of care to report aggregated information in relation to complaints, whether found or proven or not, uh, in relation to any instance of bullying, aggression or violence or sexual harassment. Every employer with more than 50 people is going to be required to pro provide these biannual reports to government and through that presumably enforcement uh, patterns and decisions will be made by the relevant regulator, uh, WorkSafe Victoria, and that will no doubt give rise to any number of things in addition to the potential for reputational risk and harm. Uh, that is unusual. Uh, concerns about hazards at work, uh, issues that are raised, hazards that are identified are not routinely required to be reported to safety regulators. This gives special prominence to these particular hazards, bullying, uh, exposure to aggression or violence, exposure to sexual harassment, and will impose a positive reporting obligation. And as these reports are intended to be, uh, as it were, um, confidential to the to the reporting mechanism, but of course the, the question will be once that information is available, who might expect to see that information and you can imagine the uh, uh, expectation that some of this information will be made public or made available to on-site health and safety representatives and others. So this is a big change. Uh, there's no two ways about this. This is a this is a significant evolution of the way in which health and safety law has been described or regulated in Victoria. 
these laws are due to come into effect. They said July, it's taking a bit longer, so it'll be over the course of the next month or so, you would imagine, you would anticipate prior to the November election and Parliament's being prorogued in uh, the course of October. So you might imagine this law will be brought into regulation over the next month or so. Final observation in relation to the Victorian position. Uh, it, whilst all this is in train, uh, WorkSafe Victoria has produced a document uh, which describes uh, the risks associated with what is um, on the next slide here described as uh, work-related gendered violence and sexual harassment and they produce a specific guidance document for employers which imposes duties of care on employers to manage these risks at work. Now gendered violence as it is described in this document stretches the boundaries of both of those words. This is not focused solely on gendered related conduct. This includes conduct which might be described as homophobic, it might be described as transphobic, conduct which covers a, a broader spectrum, I suppose, of uh, socially unacceptable conduct in workplaces. And violence in that description is not a description of physical violence or even uh, assault in the way that we might imagine that word uh, being described, but it describes violence in an extremely broad way describes violence as being exposed to these sorts of um, uh, microaggression style events in workplaces and the human toll that that can have uh, as being an emblem for a description of violence. An extremely graphic and probably unhelpful uh, advertising campaign from WorkSafe Victoria using all the, you know, all the power of CGI to describe uh, in really un unhelpful, I think, and loose ways what it is uh, this regulator is getting at with this guidance material. But I would encourage you on this call to seek out and obtain this guidance note because it describes, in essence, criminalisation of antisocial behaviour at work on a spectrum, on a spectrum from things that are already criminal, sexual assault, uh, rape, other things, to things which are intolerable under sexual harassment and other legislation but seeks to broaden the definition of both of those things into, into much more nuanced areas of what I'll call sort of antisocial or anti-social um, uh, uh, behaviour uh, in relation to workplaces. And, and again, this is at the vanguard, I think, of the way in which health and safety regulation is moving in this area. So Victoria perhaps is, is leading the pack, if leading is a description of, of having the most expansive description of uh, the expectations and the requirements on employers. So Aaron, I, I might throw to you, how does that gel with the way in which other states and territories are thinking about these issues and, and their focus? Yeah, thanks, Steve. Um, look, I think I might pick up on one of the observations you made right at the start of the presentation, because um, you're right, I think the, the Victorian regulations are currently the high watermark. Uh, no other jurisdiction has released regulations to include in their OHS regimes, uh, um, you know, sort of specific matters that organisations, duty holders need to take into account uh, in dealing with psychosocial hazards in the workplace. So what we've got currently uh, are the Victorian provisions. <clears throat> uh, and I think what we can expect though, moving forward and probably very quickly, is some further change within the various states and territories um, where uh, specific regulations will be introduced into the various WHS frameworks across the country. We will get there. Um, but there's a clear reason for that. We all know that Marie Boland back in 2019 released her report um, and made a number of recommendations in that report, including, you know, uh, having very specific provisions in WHS regulations to manage the issue around psychosocial hazards. 
Um, and, and that report um, has been endorsed uh, at many levels, uh, including supported by the workplace relations ministers across the jurisdictions. Uh, and if you have a look at the ALP sort of platform for WHS in the lead up to the election, it was very, very clear that the ALP is supportive of the implementation of the um, Boland recommendations and also many other matters, including those arising from the respective work report. So Steve, we're gonna get there. Uh, it's just a matter of when. Um, I think another important feature of uh, considering the regulatory landscape um, is not to forget that fairly recently, um, Safe Work Australia did um, release some proposed regulations um, dealing with psychosocial risks. Um, they are in a much more simplistic form than the Victorian ones, and I encourage everyone on this call to have a look at them. Um, they are in the model regulations that are on the Safe Work Australia published website. Um, they are contained within uh, Division 11 of Part 3.2 of those regulations, if you're looking for them. Uh, and um, they are in fairly simple terms, and I'll just touch on a couple of the aspects of what those regulations do. They first of all just provide some definitions. Um, one interesting one is they provide a definition of a psychosocial hazard. And Steve, as you mentioned, that's a term that's defined in the Victorian regime. What is really interesting though, is that um, as you pointed out under the Victorian regime, there's this focus on something that arises that gives, um, gives an outcome around a negative psychological response. Now that seems to me to be quite a vague but very broad uh, concept in my mind. Um, the model regime and the definition of a psychosocial hazard, everybody, um, that's been put in by Safe Work Australia doesn't go so far. It uses the expression, you know, the psychosocial hazard is certain things uh, that may cause psychological harm. Um, that's more, in my, my view, sort of more directly um, understandable and people might be able to then uh, sort of uh, assess themselves um, when they're looking at sort of what the work factors are and work design factors are, whether in fact they might cause psychological harm as opposed to the more nebulous, in my view, concept of what a negative psychological response might be. So I encourage you to have a look at it. Um, and just one other observation on the uh, model regulations, um, everybody, please, um, it's worthwhile having a look at um, the back end of them. The back end of them say that in, in managing this issue, you must, as a duty holder, take into account a whole list of things. There's a shopping list there and it's a must. So it's a mandatory requirement. And I won't go through all of them, but they're similar to the concepts Steve's talked about around design of work um, and interactions between people at the workplace. So um, have a look at what those model regs say, because um, whilst Victoria has released um, their proposed regulations um, in a different form to what Safe Work Australia has released, um, I expect that across the jurisdictions, um, many might adopt what the model regs say. So um, that's where we're at in terms of regulatory reform. Um, there's been a number of things that have been going on. And um, if you have a look at the slide, I'm gonna to touch on a few um, aspects in terms of what's going on around the grounds outside of Victoria. Um, I must say as a high level observation, uh, what we've got here is a very inconsistent approach across states and territories, which I think is entirely unhelpful. Um, we have a whole range of documents that have been published, uh, which touch on psychosocial risks, um, which again um, is, is in a sense um, unhelpful because they don't adopt a, a consistent methodology in the way these things are put together and the information that's given to people to assess what they need to do. Um, but then on the flip side, of course, at least provides information for people to read and take into account. So apart from the documentation, there's also, and you'll see on the slide in various jurisdictions, a number of inquiries um, that are ongoing in relation to this sort of topic um, and those inquiry, inquiries will no doubt uh, result in various recommendations across the jurisdictions on issues such as 
you know, discrimination laws um, and other inquiries around, um, you know, inappropriate behaviour within areas such as parliaments, etc. Um, there are codes of practice in uh, New South Wales uh, and Western Australia, they are useful documents. Uh, in Queensland, there's no code of practice. Um, there is a useful tool, I encourage you to have a look at it. It's a psychosocial risk assessment tool, I've seen it. It does provide a range of questions for duty holders to consider and then sort of an assessment process in order to um, determine what controls you need to put into place. And I should mention while we're um, dealing with Queensland um, fairly recently, I think this week, uh, Minister Grace Grace has um, announced that there is a panel of experts who have been put together to undertake a review of the WHS laws here in Queensland. So no doubts arising from that review, uh, what we're going to get is a raft of recommendations for change. Uh, and I strongly expect those recommendations will include changes um, in this area that we're talking about. Um, if I can sort of pitch a common theme maybe uh, in sort of looking at sort of the documentation and the artefacts that are published, I think the, the real common theme um, that comes to mind for me is the concept that uh, one of the starting points for everyone and for duty holders is let's understand the issue at the workplace level. Okay, so what is it within our workplace that we need to grip up and understand so that we can move forward from here to uh, then assess risk and whether in fact psychological harm is, is a result of all of this uh, and then put in place controls. And so all of the documents give some guidance on that. They talk about conducting surveys, there's a strong theme around consultation and I think we're going to see a lot of probably change around consultation as we move forward over the next couple of years. Uh, and a strong theme around looking at metrics, you know, absenteeism rates and other metrics that you've got, data you've got to be able to look at where the problem areas might be within your own workplace um, as a starting point to understand uh, what work factors can give rise to psychosocial harm. Um, and look, I think this probably leads into another topic I've been thinking about and interested in and something the other day popped up that um, uh, sort of in my mind mentioned it's important to mention it on this call is the fact that um, uh, regulators are sitting in the background of all of this um, and what will the regulators approach be? Will they sit back and wait and see whether when all the regs are in, be patient and allow duty holders to you know, reform and, and have time to grip these changes up and, and implement necessary controls or are they likely to get out there and um, you know, adopt a hard enforcement approach? If I can use the terminology that we've used in Queensland for a while uh, and therefore force employers along the journey. Um, I don't quite know. I think we might actually see disparate approach across the various jurisdictions. I've spoken to the regulators in Queensland uh, and um, it appears that, you know, once Queensland um, releases various artefacts, I understand there's a code of practice coming out and I expect regulations. Uh, I understand that, um, you know, the regulators um, are not going to maintain patience too long where organisations are not uh, gripping this issue up and in implementing compliance regimes. So we do need to be very careful about that. And I think evident in, 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 in this discussion, there was a recent uh, announcement of a case by Comcare, a prosecution against the Department of De Defence on this very issue uh, that arose from a um, RAF member who took his own life at the Williamstown RAF base a couple of years ago. And that's now followed with prosecution proceedings under the Commonwealth WHS regime against the Department of Defence that specifically alleges that Department of Defence failed to take reasonably practicable measures to manage psychosocial risks that gave rise to this very, very unacceptable outcome. So um, that's a real watch this space and something that shouldn't be forgotten. 
Yeah, thank you, Aaron. Um, and this is exceptional summary material. We'll, we'll make this available to all the presenters, uh, sorry, to all the attendees, because uh, there's some good hyperlinks here of, of just what's happening and, and it, it is hard to sort of keep across. Olga, one of the things that we were going to speak about is uh, the response to the enough is enough report, which I know is work that you've been doing uh, with your team and some of our clients. Um, do, do you want to talk us through that? Yeah, so the Enough is Enough report is a culmination of a WA parliamentary inquiry into sexual harassment in the FIFO mining industry. Um, and the inquiry really um, began as um, with a series of reports. So on the next slide, you'll see that the timeline. Um, what we see there is that there was a series of public reports in the media in relation to some very serious incidents of sexual harassment at various accommodation villages across the state. Um, and that triggered the inquiry. Um, and what the, the terms of reference are, are noted on the slide there, the inquiry really was examining four key areas. The nature and extent of um, the issue of sexual harassment, company and industry practices and whether they were adequate, regulation and whether that was adequate, and then current actions by both government and industry and whether there were any good examples of practice. Uh, so there were a number of submissions, there were public hearings where both the regulator and industry bodies and companies as well as individuals appeared, uh, as well as testimony of uh, individuals in, including in private sittings. Um, and the report was released in June of this year and we're expecting the government response at the middle of next month. Now the report made 79 findings and 24 recommendations, both in relation to industry um, and government. Uh, actions and broadly the report acknowledged the sincerity of company statements of shock and concern and commitment to change but was generally critical of industry and regulatory efforts today and in particular Demir's the Department of Mines and Industry and Regulation was quite heavily criticised in relation to its failures in this space and already we have seen in going to Aaron's point that regulator in, in WA has been quite active primarily as a result of um, a lot of the criticisms um, there's been a lot of guidance released by that regulator but also activity on the ground we're seeing um, requests for documents in relation to complaints of bullying and harassment and sexual harassment being made already so there certainly has been a shift here in WA in that space and we can expect um, based on uh, I think the findings and recommendations further action by the regulator further guidance as well as uh, further regulatory reform uh, so if we turn now to the key findings there are six key areas of findings that we think are relevant to the mining industry but also that translate across other sectors more broadly uh, for you to consider the, there are three key findings relevant to the regulators approach as well so firstly broadly and consistent with the Federal Sex Discrimination um, Commission's Respect at Work report, the inquiry found that sexual harassment has long been and continues to be very prevalent in uh, the industry. And the Respect at Work report uh, found that there was actually a higher than average incidence of sexual harassment in the mining sector. 74% of women had experienced sexual harassment in the last five years. Um, and secondly, the report found that the resources industry in general and fly and fly out parts of the industry in particular embodied all the main risk factors which contribute to sexual harassment. Uh, what they looked at was uh, poor culture, gender inequality, power imbalances, the hierarchical or highly controlled nature of the environment, misuse of alcohol, the high use of insecure labour, higher contract and subcontract workers. So these were all uh, risk factors that the inquiry found were particularly 
prevalent and irrelevant in mining workplaces. Um, and it recognised that there'd been efforts to change the gender balance, but it was still sitting at around 20%. And in particular found that there was poor female representation at that manager and supervisor level, which contributed to the issue of power imbalance in this space. Uh, thirdly, the report highlighted that underreporting was a key issue. Um, and this is again consistent with the findings of the Respect at Work report. Um, the inquiry noted that senior players in the industry were taking the issue very seriously, but was concerned at the surprise that had been expressed as to the extent of the problem. And it saw this as a serious corporate and industry failure. So I recently interviewed the Federal Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, at our offices, and we spoke about some of the systemic issues that have contributed to leadership within organisations receiving data which effectively misrepresents what's happening on the ground, which is what this inquiry has been has found. Um, and in particular, the Commissioner noted that the nature of the regulatory system has been designed around employees and former employees bringing complaints, and that there are often significant barriers to doing so, including a lack of support, which was also a finding of the report for reporters, um, as well as a complex legal system. And that this together with the real fear of retaliation uh, and a potential detrimental effect on their career can mean that their uh, reporting, underreporting does continue to be um, a significant issue. And this also mirrors the findings of the Equality Across the Board report, which was a joint report of the Commission, Human Rights Commission and the Council of Superannuation Investors, uh, which found that uh, they surveyed a number of ASX 200 companies and found that reporting up to the board only occurred in about 50% of cases. So, uh, Leadership is not getting the data that they need um, in terms of um, was one of the key findings in, in terms of taking that action. Um, one of the other uh, findings uh, related to Demir is also not getting key data. So the inquiry was very critical of regulators not receiving comprehensive information from companies and also having limited systems to deal with that information that they do receive. So one of the issues, uh, Steve has obviously noted that, that there'll be reporting of data to the Victorian regulator. I think there might be further data reporting across the board, but how a regulator is going to be able to deal potentially with the vast volumes of that data, uh, particularly because there's such a broad spectrum of conduct that might be captured here. Um, and that we'll see that in the findings um, when I talk about that on the next slide. Uh, and one of the key problems in this space also is the lack of clarity around when to report. So the inquiry noted that companies believed that they had unclear guidance on what information they needed to pass on to regulators and that the regulation is not really fit for purpose. It doesn't really neatly fit with psychological injuries. So it's really still focused on physical injuries um, that might uh, arise. Um, and fourthly, the inquiry also found that there appeared to be a lack of accountability for perpetrators, that they were simply moved on and moved around the industry. Um, and a lack of support for individuals who reported um, incidents. So they were in, given in a, um, adequate uh, guidance and support, they were re-traumatised through investigative uh, processes uh, and also criticised the use of non-disclosure agreements. But uh, the Federal Sex Discrimination Commissioner uh, has indicated to us that her view is that the use of non-disclosure agreements should still be the impacted person's choice and, and not removed altogether. Um, so moving then to the key findings, on the industry side you can see that the first two recommendations are really aimed at uh, removing the perpetrators from the workplace, so if you can call that elimination of the hazard, um, but uh, that's not really um, a panacea. Um, 
probably the most controversial and publicised recommendation um, is the idea of an industry register of perpetrators. This is currently being reviewed and, and considered by a number of the industry bodies um, and I'm sure there'll be further discussion about this, but there are certainly many difficulties with this, with this idea. And certainly reference checks or probity checks are, uh, can achieve a similar objective, but I guess settlement agreements with confidentiality clauses can be a blocker for this. Um, but really, it's not just a case of getting rid of the so-called bad apples. It, it really is also um, throughout the, the report, um, a, focus on proper investigative processes and accountability as a key tenet of driving positive culture. Um, and the next five recommendations on that slide really try to address um, the issue of, of risk management. So risk framework, which is consistent across the industry, the key risk factors of alcohol, gender imbalance, insecure workers and lack of physical security. Uh, these recommendations are aimed to tackle these particular risk factors. And we've seen companies already taking action in this space, reviewing alcohol procedures, uh, reviewing uh, and trying to promote further uh, gender representations at senior levels. Um, insecure work is also in the spotlight as part of the ALP reform agenda, as is gender equality. So there will be further reform in this space in any event from a broader perspective. And this is certainly something that we're seeing that there really is now this overlap between safety issues and employment and industrial relations issues. Um, and this confluence is creating further complexity for companies. Um, uh, additionally, one of the keys uh, recommendations uh, on the regulatory side is around reporting and data collection and data systems. Um, so the inquiry was keen to ensure that the privacy of reporters was not compromised and was critical of the regulatory systems around this uh, and also the sharing of information between the police and um, Demirs. So we're already seeing um, some movement in this space. Um, the regulator Demirs has already indicated that they're going to um, create additional safeguards in terms of confidentiality of reporting. Um, they're saying that all incidents uh, need to be reported, whether it's a complaint or substantiated. Um, and they're also working together with the police to develop an MOU to share information so that individuals are not re-traumatised by multiple uh, regulators interviewing them in relation to their experience. So I guess in summary, on the industry side, you can see recommendations aimed at a holistic risk-based approach, including those risk factors and controls. And, and on the regulatory and legislative side, I think we can see uh, further um, guidance and improving the adequacy of systems. There'll be further legislative reform um, to see watching this space. And I think we're already seeing increased regulatory activity and I think we'll um, continue to do so. So for the foreseeable future, I think um, this will increase regulatory compliance burden for companies and companies need to consider how their own data is captured and analysed so that they consider um, how that might be provided if it's requested by the regulator. Thanks so much, Olga. That's an um, exceptional job taking 10 minutes to summarise what was uh, an extremely um, harrowing process, I think, and uh, some, some clear recommendations for change, though. Uh, Lucy, if, if we take this example in Western Australia as being, again, something of a high watermark regulatory and parliamentary even response, uh, this is certainly not the case that this is the only jurisdiction that's grappling with this question. We start, I guess, from this fundamental proposition that if there is to be a positive duty of care on an employer to manage sexual harassment risks at work, 
uh, a policy decision by the Nestor and our previous government was to not introduce a new positive duty of care, but instead to expect that to be dealt with by work, health and safety and other regulators, something that you know we'll, we'll watch over the journey of this new government. But do you want to give us a sense of how the sexual harassment expectations are being uh, clarified and codified across Australia? Yeah, sure. Um, I'll just turn to my first slide here and you might um, notice some similarities and think, Oh, Lucy, what have you done? You've just you've copied Aaron's work. Um, but that's not the case. We've actually done this on purpose because um, a lot of where the sexual harassment regulation or guidance, I suppose you could more likely call it in all um, the other states and territories is found, is in the same place um, as where other cycles, psychosocial and broadly psychosocial risks are managed. Um, so it is a lot of the guidance of sexual harassment is grouped in with that. However, and when you take this slide away, um, everyone, and have a look at the links, you'll notice there's actually more on this slide because there have been, in addition to what's gone on in Victoria and in WA, um, specific things in, in most states and territories that have focused just on sexual harassment. Um, generally speaking, no one's gone as far as um, WA and Victoria. A lot of state and territory WHS regulators are still relying on and providing through their, their websites links to the Safest Work Australia general guidance material. And so I haven't developed state and territory specific guidance yet. Um, the Safe Work Australia materials, if you haven't seen them, um, they include a series of infographics on sexual harassment, which were released last year. And also last year, the Safe Work Australia released a guide to preventing workplace sexual harassment which sets out the tips for businesses, including what are the recommended ways of identifying and assessing the risk of sexual harassment in the workplace, also looking at controlling those risks and also how to respond to reports of sexual harassment. So there is some important guidance there. There've also been a number of um, industry specific sexual harassment inquiries, um, for example, into traditionally hierarchical workplaces such as Parliament, um, as in New South Wales, which we all heard about a couple of weeks ago, um, if you were paying attention to the news. In Tasmania, there's there's one in Parliament ongoing. Uh, there's also been that in South Australia. Of course, uh, the legal profession um, has been the subject to inquiries about sexual harassment and even up to and including the courts around Australia. Obviously, the most publicised was the High Court of Australia involving a former um, justice. And then more broadly, um, they looked at sexual harassment in, in, the, in the High Court as well. Um, separate from sexual harassment, and maybe why it's taken a bit longer in, in some of the jurisdictions, is that some states like New South Wales and Tasmania have been focusing their attention on other forms of sexual violence so and, and the criminal behaviour associated with that, so such as sexual consent um, and um, informed consent laws and things like that. Um, and maybe next they'll start turning their minds to sexual harassment. But there are two um, good examples that I just wanted to focus on in um, the next part, and they draw from Queensland and New South Wales, both relating to sexual harassment. The former um, in Queensland is about really law reform, um, and uh, the second is in New South, South Wales, focusing on that, that report into New South Wales Parliament because it does actually provide some really good guidance on what workplaces more generally can be doing. So on the next slide, um, I'll take you through these two. So first of all, Queensland. Um, 
Amongst other things, um, there's been uh, proposed amendments to the Industrial Relations Act in 2016. Um, so the Act's going to cover a, a few things, including entitlements for independent couriers um, and addressing gender equity and parental and adoption leave kind of generally. However, there are specific sexual harassment um, strengthening protections in um, the proposed amendments. The Queensland Government has come out and said it believes that um, the Bill's sexual harassment amendments are necessary to provide protections and deterrence against sexual harassment and sex or gender-based harassment connected with employment. And it's going to do this by adding key provisions to the main purpose of the IR Act and replacing existing definitions of sexual harassment and discrimination in the Industrial Relations Act with those contained in the anti-discrimination legislation. The bill is going to amend, well, when it becomes an act, is going to amend the definition of an industrial matter to include sexual harassment and sex or gender-based harassment in order to facilitate access to orders and permit the Queensland Industrial Relations Commission to exercise its general conciliation and arbitration powers for sexual harassment and sex or gender-based harassment complaints. What this will do will ensure that sexual harassment is misconduct for the purposes of summary dismissal and require that the um, Industrial Relations Commission consider where the, whether a dismissed employee engaged in sexual harassment or sex or gender-based harassment in deciding whether a dismissal was harsh, unjust or unreasonable. So that's a big change there and the government's also acknowledged that what these reforms are going to require is specific guidance for staff members and commissioners um, in just how to deal um, with these new provisions. So that's currently um, before Parliament and we'll be tracking um, how that goes. That was in, introduced in, in late June, so um, a bit of a way to go. Um, and the next one, and uh, something that provides really good guidance for what businesses should be doing um, um, on sexual harassment, is the New South Wales um, Parliamentary Inquiry. So um, that was an independent review of bullying, sexual harassment, sexual misconduct in the New South Wales Parliamentary Workplaces um, and the report was released a couple of weeks ago on the 12th of August. So as in case anyone doesn't know, this was a review from the former Sex Discrimination Commissioner Elizabeth Broderick and it revealed that almost one third of respondents um, had experienced bullying in Parliament for the first five um, in the past five years and then almost one in five workers said they experienced sexual harassment representing a significant portion of um, the parliamentary workforce in New South Wales. The report highlighted that staff power imbalances, poor training and insufficient reporting channels were contributing factors to the culture of bullying and sexual harassment. And what we've seen in inquiries generally across the board, across Australia, has been those exact factors leading to increased risk of sexual harassment. The report um, recommended a framework of action made up of six categories, um, which I've listed there underneath the New South Wales heading. Um, so these are six categories for reform um, and the New South Wales Parliament has announced it will implement all of them. And really these, these category, categories provide a really good framework for um, how to manage kind of sexual harassment risks in all workplaces, not just in um, New South Wales Parliament. And it's something I think is a really good tool that could be used for businesses and organisations in looking at, okay, what, what are the things you know, we should be doing? So the first is relating to making prevention and early intervention a leadership and organisational priority. This is about building shared leadership responsibility for these issues, um, developing a really strong statement of values, and also, also strengthening governance and coordination. So having a diverse leadership membership 
um, is what the report recommended, inviting subject matter experts in um, to discuss issues with those in leadership about you know, these particular prevalent issues such as sexual harassment or other psychosocial risks. The next um, category was about addressing the cultural factors that contribute to um, this kind of culture. Um, and then again, that uh, the report recommended strengthening and resourcing work on diversity and inclusion, addressing power imbalances, um, and clearly setting out, um, it was suggested in the report, um, what conduct of senior leaders can actually be investigated um, and how that is done. It's looking at reviewing and improving working hours um, and conditions for staff, reducing harms associated with alcohol consumption, um, including uh, the report recommended having annual expert training on the alcohol policy that leaders actively support and attend, um, and establishing a task force to look at specific risks for um, diverse groups such as LGBTQI plus people um, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Next is about creating an enabling policy environment. So, of course, reviewing and updating the policies you have in place, um, updating any um, written um, employment agreements or contracts you have to remove any structural barriers there may be to reporting um, um, sexual harassment or bullying. It's also looking at reviewing and updating the policy framework covering issues um, such as bullying, sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. Um, this is uh, what the report suggested in having a standalone um, policy noting uh, that about sexual harassment and bullying, not lumping it into a, a general workplace behaviours policy. Um, they've also suggested that uh, it specifically, the policy specifically address um, having um, sexual harassment and bullying acknowledged as a work health and safety issue. Um, and addressing the experience as well of people from different diverse um, backgrounds, focusing on prevention and early intervention, which is what all the guidance material around Australia suggests, um, and having proportionate outcomes um, for behaviour. Uh, next, looking at informing, empowering and supporting, encouraging people to speak up and take action. That's all about having best practice training, best practice leadership styles, and also implementing strategies to improve um, the uptake of training. And this is something I think we've all experienced in our clients coming to us and really wanting a new way to train um, on these issues, um, more inventive ways and something that younger people as well and a more modern workforce um, is going to embrace. Next about creating a safe reporting environment that's human-centric and, and trauma-informed. Um, that's all about re-looking at reports, um, up, um, new pathways for reporting from your workers, um, providing access to support for all persons involved, not just, um, of course, the, uh, let's say, complainant or the victim and the respondent, but also any witnesses. Um, and, and also developing um, principles on confidentiality and transparency around these matters. And finally, um, the report re uh, recommended having a multifaceted approach um, to transparent mon monitoring. And so that's having a, your process for monitoring these kind of issues, looking at hotspots, which is what Aaron was talking about um, in, in the guidance material um, for psychosocial risks, and a strong look at auditing activities um, about creating the safe and inclusive um, workplace. So I would encourage you uh, all to have a look at the report. It actually provides really good guidance about the types of things um, that you should be doing as an employer or as a business um, for your organisation. Yeah, thanks, Lucy. And, and look, I, I agree. I think it's um, 
it's a crystallization probably of everything we've been talking about today. I mean, this is this is a striking event, right? We we have had a discussion about health and safety and not spoken about physical health and safety once really. We 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 are now kind of at the frontier of what work health and safety thinking and sophistication is going to have to look at, and it is far broader than it was 10 years ago. Um, I, I suppose the question, uh, you know, uh, uh, our attendees on this call we had over 700 people register for, for, for this webinar. I'm interested in what our, what our take home message is. Where, where to from here? Um, if health and safety law is a device by which we achieve social expectations, nobody should be hurt, nobody should be killed at work, and now we have nobody should be psychologically injured uh, at work uh, across a range of areas. How do we take this forward? I'm interested in your thoughts, Aaron, perhaps if you want to walk us through what, what your advice is here as the starting point. Yeah, sure. Okay, thanks, Steve. Um, look, my advice in terms of a starting point is uh, have an answer to the question, you know, what have you done? So what have you done to manage this issue? What have you done to manage, you know, the psychosocial risks at your workplace? And I think the focus needs to be the latter half of that at your workplace. Um, there's a lot of material out there and I spoke about some of that. There's a number of codes of practice at a state level, Safe Work Australia are published. Um, and I think really a lot of people who I'm speaking to are a little bit baffled about sort of where to start with all of this. Uh, and I think, I think the key message is actually just start. I think um, read the materials, get across the codes, understand what the guidance says. And then at the workplace level, do what one of the key themes is that arises from all of those materials in my mind um, and start talking to people. So that whole consultation piece, you know, if you've got HSRs, they need to be involved, speak to your workforce, the exec team, the management team, everyone needs to have a voice in this. Um, and it's challenging, no doubt, um, but I think you need to understand at the workplace level, what are those risk factors that might give rise to you know, psychological harm. Now, it'll be challenging. You're going to get lots of information that you yeah. may well disregard, um, but that's all okay. I think um, my last observation, Steve, is probably picking up on a comment you made about psychologists in Victoria should be looking at this. Um, it's actually quite sensible. Um, if you look at some of the guidance material, it actually talks about bringing experts into the workplace to help you. And, you know, it, you might want to think about that as well as a duty holder. Thanks, uh, Aaron. I'll go, Lucy, any thoughts? I think uh, what we're seeing is that there is this confluence of a lot of different overlapping regimes in the one sort of area. So we're seeing uh, HR, health and safety, we're seeing uh, corporate affairs uh, as well in terms of um, there's a, a lot of ESG issues at the moment, um, there's a lot of transparency um, drivers in terms of reporting these issues more broadly at, in terms of annual report sustainability reporting as well, um, and, and legal in terms of potential claims and potential regulatory action, uh, as well as leadership and uh, right up to the board. So there's a lot of different um, key stakeholders to engage. So one of the things that a lot of our clients are looking at is what's the governance framework who is going to be leading this because there are so many different experts within as well as external to the organisations. Um, and what some of the things to feed into that is are those risk factors. So there may well be um, also the labour hire contracting um, aspect. How are you going to deal with your contractors as well as another sort of stakeholder in, in this process? So there's a lot of, um, I guess, engagement with a lot of different parties as part of this process. Yeah. Thanks, Olga. Lucy, any, any other thoughts? Yeah, look, I'll keep it brief, but it's really um, clearly what's been happening over the past 
40 years since um, health and safety regulation came in, um, the regulators have now decided it hasn't been working um, in this area and generally society has found that. So we really need to think of a new way of dealing um, with these issues. Clearly what we've been doing in our workplaces hasn't worked. So bringing a new mind, um, yes, there is a minefield of information out there. Nothing's gonna work for every business, but for in, when you're in Victoria and you're gonna have to um, follow a, a specific regime at the moment. Um, but have a look at what works for your workplace and um, think about it differently maybe than you've been thinking about um, other safety risks and in particular this risk as you have um, in the past however many years. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Um, and we haven't even touched on the global uh, uh, the, the, the global state of knowledge on this issue. ISO 45003, I know has been raised in one of the uh, questions from, from the attendees. Is that a relevant source of information? I think the answer is I think the answer is yes, but uh, as Aaron has suggested, and, and, uh, and I think Olga is your echoing, getting lost in the guidance material uh, is, is, is labyrinthine uh, at the moment. The, the, the better approach is to sort of be mindful of that and to have that discussion with the team. One of the questions we've had uh, has been about uh, a regulatory grace period, uh, as it were. I suspect we are beyond thinking about it that, that way. Um, uh, the, the Victorian regulations, they say, if introduced, won't be enforced formally. Uh, for, for another 12 months or so, so if they're brought into effect in September this year, they won't be enforced until September next year. But of course, that doesn't mean that the description of the expectations of an employer aren't set in stone from the day they are promulgated. Um, health and safety representatives can issue PIN notices, regulators might be able to issue improvement notices, even if they won't take hard enforcement positions. So I think, you know, to answer the, one of the, a number, I think, of the questions that have come through, we've got, a, we've got a grace period ahead of us, that might be the wrong way of thinking about it. Social expectations have dramatically moved and the respective work report, we will look back in 10 years time as, a, as a, you know, an essential catalyst for what's been a dramatic change journey, a rapid one. Uh, I, I think that grace period has expired if it, if it ever existed. And now is the time to be thinking about this in a holistic way. So I, I, I'm very conscious that uh, those on the call have committed to their hour, but no doubt are back-to-backs on something else. So I, I'm uh, gonna keep us to time, but can I say thank you so much for the work that's gone in Lucy, Olga and Aaron on the, the session today. And thank you for those who've been traveling through uh, on the chat with your questions. I've made sure most of these have been answered as we've, as we've traveled through. We will circulate these slide materials to the, to the attendees and, and a, a, a single page sort of where to from here, Matt. Um, um, we'd love to have a you know, further discussion with you in due course, but in the meantime, we really trust those guidance materials and the links to the current state of knowledge are, are of use. So I'll uh, conclude the session there. Thank you for your attendance. Uh, we look forward to seeing you at the final safety leadership series, uh, which we'll be hosting in a few months time. Thank you.